the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And welcome, everybody. This is Cheryl Esposito with Leading Conversations. Today, our special guest is Wilford Welch. Wilford has a, quite an interesting life to tell us about. Um, he is currently chairman of Cross-Cultural Journeys Foundation. He is director of the Emerging Global Leaders Fellowship Program, which sounds quite interesting, co-founder of the Quest for Global Healing, which uh, he has some update information to talk to us about, and most recently, author of the book, The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World. Wilford, welcome to Leading Conversations. Thanks very much, Cheryl. I'm so glad to have you here. So where are you in the world today? I am now on our houseboat in Sausalito, but I've been on book tour for the last five or so weeks, so it's nice to be back here. Oh, wow. So your house is a houseboat in Sausalito. That means you're, you're floating home, right? That is correct. Yeah, that must Happy be camp. fun. My wife is in India at the moment leading a trip, but I'm right back here very comfortably ensconced. Oh, that's great. And it's a beautiful day in Sausalito, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, well, I'm in San Francisco, so I can kind of wave to you across the bay, you know? <laughs> but we're having a beautiful day, too, so it's it's nice to be sharing that with you today. So, Wilfred, I'd really like you to share with our listeners um, a little bit about your history. Um, you have quite an interesting history. You have been connected to um, world issues and understanding global challenges most of your career. And um, I know that you were trained as an attorney. Were you trained as an attorney in international law? Is that where you kind of got your interest around this? No. How I got my interest in international was... My father and mother, but particularly my father, really uh, created wonderful opportunities for his children, five of us, to go abroad at various times when we were young. And that really took with me. And uh, after college, I went off to Hong Kong to teach in a Chinese refugee college uh, and got very clear that I wanted to see if I could play a role in the reconciliation between China and the United States. This is back hmm. in 61, 63. Uh-huh. We had no diplomatic relations, and um, I was trying to figure out how I could hit my start as something that would uh, play out during my lifetime and I could make a contribution. Yeah. And I went to Berkeley Law School after that to study Chinese law uh, as a way of staying engaged in the Chinese language and modern Chinese culture and politics as a way of setting myself up possibly for getting engaged in the diplomatic service. And I ended up going into the diplomatic service and was Bill Bundy's assistant in uh, the late 60s um, and uh, in the early part of the 70s during the uh, Nixon administration in very early stages of our reconciliation with China. So I did play a role in that. Oh, wow. And so you were, what was your title in that? I was assistant to the assistant uh, secretary of state for Asia. So Bill Bundy had okay. all of the ambassadors uh, including Vietnam, by the way, 
because that was the oh, wow. key parts of the Vietnam War. I always joke I never went to bed for about six years. I bet. <laughs> hey, oh, and, and it was a it was a real privilege. Most people are surprised uh-huh. to hear me say this, but it was a real privilege to be working for very, very bright, committed, thoughtful people, as how right. Sam talks, the best and the brightest, but who were stuck in making bad decisions. Uh-huh. But these were these were mostly men, and they were men of great integrity, trying to work their way through a very difficult situation. And as a young man, I was very privileged to be a part of that, even though uh-huh. I was very much against the war. Well, that's very interesting. So how... That brings up something interesting. So how did you reconcile that element, you know, being, having personal feelings about um, the war and, you know, not believing in it itself, and yet working within the construct that was supporting the war? How did you reconcile that with yourself? No, I, can, I can answer that, I think. Uh, <clears throat> back up a little bit. I spent a lot of time in Vietnam during my... In where? in Vietnam during my years yeah, yeah. in Hong Kong. Then I was at Berkeley, which, of course, was totally against the war. And then I walked into the administration that was prosecuting the war. So I really had an exposure mm-hmm. to all three and yeah. a rather unique perspective. I guess the way I did it is, is um, he received an awful lot of invitations to speak at campuses around the country and uh, would turn them down. I can understand why. Uh, but I said, I'm going to go. And uh, so I went to a number of campuses and got uh, a number of oranges thrown at me kind of thing. But the reason Uh, I went is because I was, the argument I had was, we're destroying this country by not communicating with each other. And uh, if this is important to talk about, we need to deal. And so my way of doing it was to, I spent an awful lot of time at 3 o'clock in the morning talking to some anti-Vietnam protesters and really sort of noodling through what was going on and giving them perspective. And they could sense that I was not uh, supportive of the war, but recognized mm. that we were trapped. Little by little right. way, we were trapped in Iraq, where I've been so angry yeah. for so long. Well, you could stay stuck in that, and I am a little bit. But at the same time, that's where we are. You now have to figure out how you're going to get out of there and how we're going to do it right. with uh, wisdom, integrity, and... Et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm. Uh, well, that brings up so many questions to my mind. I want to make sure I don't jump all the way ahead to the Iraq War, but you know, yep. we could have a big conversation about that. <laughs> so let's stay on your leadership track. Sure. So you you served as a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Um, you contributed in a big way to the development of uh, relationships um, between the U.S. and China and um, other. Asian or other Asian countries, mm-hmm. and and then you moved on to do some some other interesting things. I know you were uh, a professor of international business. Where did you teach? Well, I went up from from the diplomatic service to Arthur D. Little, which is a very well known consulting firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and worked for corporations on their international business strategies. And did a major job in Southeast Asia, et cetera. But I saw a small institute at Arthur D. Little that was not giving degree programs, uh, but was focused most entirely on international students. And my view was that the world was becoming so international that business schools had to develop strong international programs. 
and no, there was no courses in the United States at any business schools on international business, um, which quite astounded me. Uh, and so I created a ultimately a 20, 20 session course with um, a, an hour and a half each and had about 70 students, and I did that for about eight years. So it became wow. known as the Arthur D. Little Management Education Institute, and uh-huh. with some assistance from me, uh, ultimately got full authority to grant a master's degree in international uh-huh. in, in business. So that's what I did from from uh, up until 1980. Uh, during wow. the years I was going to You know, today the um, having the degree of, in, in international business. Um, finance and administration is is common, you know. So you are really spearheading a movement. Mm-hmm. No, I think so. So you had the vision. You had the vision. You, um, your, I would call it a love affair for all things global, um, mm-hmm. brought you to being a publisher, I think, of the World Paper. It's, is the World Paper a publication that still exists? Well, it does in uh, Internet format, but it's, it's oh. not what it was. Uh, at the, in 1980, some of us got together and uh, were very convinced that the impulses emanating out of the non-Western world were going to have a major impact on how the world, the world turned which obviously we see from the role of China now, the role of Al-Qaeda, a lot of other things, uh, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And, uh, so, and, and that all of the international media, like The Economist, the International Herald Tribune, et cetera, et cetera, uh, CNN didn't exist at that time, were all owned and controlled by Westerners and written from a Western perspective. And we said we need a publication out there in which the voices of the world would speak on their own behalf on issues of global concern. So that um, was the notion behind the world paper, which became a supplement, a little like, I hate to say it, but like Parade Magazine is a supplement inside of existing newspapers and magazines. Ours was obviously a Mm. high-quality editorial product. um, So that in any one issue, it came out weekly, in any one issue, let's say we're writing on the changing role of women, we might have a female journalist from Saudi Arabia, which there are not many, uh, from yeah. China and from the United States, all writing on that same issue from different perspectives without an editorial page. And oh, we wow. the same thing mm-hmm. on the changing role of terrorism, things like that. So that's the way we approached that. Um, we were in 22 countries with... Uh, 27 countries in six language editions with a circulation of about 2.2 million, but we never found a solid business model. We went through about seven, um, and it lasted for 14 years in its prime and then has now drifted into an Internet publication. Wow. Yeah, I think um, we had Mark Gerson as a guest on the show, and um, I think Mark might be involved in that. Mark was the first managing editor of the World Paper. Good for you. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah and Mark is a very good friend today. Oh, he's a great guy, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He also speaks very highly of you. 
Um, so, okay, so so then you have, you know, again, left your mark. You have made it, you've been quite innovative. Um, and that's something I'm noticing about, you know, as I'm reading about you and what you do, Wilfred, is that you seem to spot big openings. You know, I, I wouldn't call it trends because I think you see things before they're trends. Mm-hmm. Um, you spot openings and you look for an opportunity to make a difference. Um, would you say that that's just something that's in your nature? Did you have to teach yourself that? I mean, how did that come about in you? No, I don't think I had to teach myself that. I think it's, I have a, a substantial curiosity uh, and in a funny way, I would call myself an explorer. The two parts mm. of me are, one, my real deep commitment or con- interest in how the world turns, and my mm. other is, as um, I, I spent a lot of time in the natural world. I was the chairman of the board of the National Outdoor Leadership School, for example, and I, although I've never tried to climb Mount Everest, I've been on Everest twice, uh, right. once uh, as the leader of a support team to help bring down the 5,000 pounds of trash off of the high camps. Oh, boy. Before. The reason I mention those two is they both, they're, they're both a, a form of exploration. Right, um, right. And when I, back in 1978, I guess, I was the head of a major assignment for Citibank to explore, think through their corporate strategy. I was the head of the whole international side of that uh, assignment, at least. And the key technique we used, analytical technique, was driving forces analysis, which was the whole notion of trying to, you never, you cannot predict the future, but you can uh, develop clues from starting from here and looking forward as to Mm. what are the trends that are taking you, or the forces that are taking you in a certain direction, and you get to very fancy stuff called end states, then you look backwards and determine how uh, how you might see clues of moving in right. one direction or another. I mention that only because that analytical notion is rather deeply embedded in my brain. Hmm. To try and understand, I've always been... Um, a few years ago, I was in a, a theater in the round in, in England, and I realized that was a metaphor for a lot of stuff that I've done, which is... The world is in the stage, and I just keep on moving my seat every few years. Uh, and I often change my profession a little bit to, from a diplomat to a professor or a right. publisher, etc., in which you're still doing the same thing, Cheryl. You're looking at mm. the world or a segment of the world, trying to understand the driving forces that are causing it to bring about fundamental shifts. And you are doing that and interpreting that for an audience. If you're a business consultant, you're doing it for your client. As I was talking right. about Citibank to articulate. If you're a diplomat, you're doing the same thing, but you're just doing it for your country. Right, right. Well, I want to hear more about this, and we will when we come right back from this break. the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back. We're speaking with Wilfred Welch this morning, author of The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World. So we spent the first segment, Wilfred, talking a bit about, you know, kind of your foundation, how you built yourself Mm -hmm. as a leader, how you grew, and the curiosities you developed um, as you traveled the world. So let's fast forward all the way to today. And we're going to talk about some things in between, but... Let's fast forward to today and this book that you have just released a few months ago called The Tactics of Hope. Now, just give us in a nutshell, what's this about? Uh, I have become deeply, deeply concerned that humankind is totally on a non-sustainable course, an unsustainable course. Um, uh, I think that's very obvious. If you look at uh, the 10,000 years of human history, our population sort of bumped along, the world's population, until 100 years ago when it reached 1.6 billion. In 100 years, it has jumped 5 billion, from 1.6 uh-huh. billion to 6.6 billion. In the last 50 years, humankind has consumed more of the world's resources, it's estimated, than in all of those 10,000 years before. Um, You put those two together and you go, my goodness, at least I do, Uh, this course that we're on of consuming, 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 and assuming that this earth can provide all we need is, I do not believe, at all true. And we're about to hit the wall and have more and more systemic breakdowns. And so that's the underpinning of my concerns. Notice that the book is called The Tactics of Hope, because I'm not trying to dwell on the negative. I'm trying to dwell on where the hope is. And Hmm. what has just amazed me is three things. One, the number of people who are stepping forward all over the world to become part of the solution rather than the problem. 
mm-hmm. somewhat based on some of these concerns about people who are living, living in poverty or or areas that um, may uh, be underwater pretty soon because of uh, global warming. Uh, secondly, that there are um, uh, a number of social entrepreneurs out there who are using methods, which I can describe if you choose, uh, to create systemic change for the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could go on, but those... So I'm writing a book... I've written a book that's now out, um, the mission of which is to inspire and support individuals around the mm. world who are concerned about what I've just said and want to move from concern to passion to vision to action in mm-hmm. which they can indeed be part of the solution. Well, you know, and that's so important because oftentimes with so much information that we have access to, um, people, individuals want to do something and get stuck, I think, by two things. One is, you know, hey, I have to pay the bills, and so this is what my job's about. And the other is the problem's so big anyway, what could I do? So you're saying, I think, that there are ways to address both of those issues. Without question. Uh, the notion, remember I mentioned in 1961 I headed off to that refugee college in Hong Kong. Well, that was a little hard to find, to figure out how to do yeah. that kind of thing, who to coordinate right. with, et cetera, et cetera, and how to make a difference. In 2008, that, that uh, is three clicks away. It's rather mm-hmm. easy to begin to determine if you have a concern, how you might be able to make a difference, which doesn't mean you have to go to the other ends of the world. Uh, and um, therefore, I almost, I almost called this book, Get On With It. And what I really meant was, if you are concerned, and I believe you should be, there are very effective ways to really make a difference. I mean, some people... Uh, as simple as the difference they make is just become conscious of the, the, the actions that they take that are creating some of the problems. Just right. like those little shifts, like separating the trash. Yeah. Now, the other extreme, of course, are people, many of whom are highlighted in the book, who are giving up their entire lives to make a huge difference mm-hmm. in ways that uh, satisfy them greatly. And there are a whole range of things in between. Hmm. So if you, you must have had uh, encounters with people who are saying, you know, separating the trash and changing my light bulbs isn't enough for me. I, I want work that has a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any stories about people who, um, maybe one or two you can share with us? Well, uh, there's... Um, Easy one that's mentioned early in the book. Easy meaning uh, is a very easy way of someone to make a big difference. Mark Hanus hmm. uh, was um, a student in sophomore college, Swarthmore College, uh, about uh, five years ago, four years ago probably, in which he got really upset. He's a Holocaust victim in terms of his grandparents. Got really hmm. upset with uh, what was going on in, the, in Darfur. And he now has access to the Internet, and he put out uh, messages to fellow students throughout the United States asking for $10 donations 
so that he could start doing something. He raised $250,000 that way and created Genocide Intervention Network, which put a huge amount of pressure on Darfur, created the money to add a police force um, in Darfur, or support police force, a legitimate police force um, that were really trying to help the refugees as opposed to take advantage of them. And so here he was. He never had to leave the country or Swarthmore to make an immense difference. Hmm. Um, well, that's one example. So he set up a nonprofit, basically, a non-profit. and asked for donations. And it still goes mm-hmm. today. I got an invitation to go to something um, a couple of days ago uh, that's out here in wow. California for him. Wow. Uh, another one is another one in California, a little, little more uh, extensive in terms of effort. Uh, many of uh, your listeners know of Kiva, K-I-V-A dot mm-hmm. O-R-G, and Matt and Jessica Flannery, graduating from the Stanford Business School, recognize that, remember all the ads that you've seen in Time magazine of uh, a young child with a cleft lip? And sure. basically says, could you give to someone like this? They need your help. Right. Well, um, Kiva has now gone way beyond that. Uh, you know when you look at that Time magazine that your $10 or your $25 is not going to go to the, that person being pictured. Right. Uh, in Kiva, you're able to go to their website, and let's say you're concerned, you're interested in health care in Guatemala, and mm-hmm. uh, you're able to see the 25 people that are listed on their website that you might be able to give a loan to, $25 or $50, et cetera, for them to get into their social, to fund their social entrepreneurial activity, or their, their social activity. And mm-hmm. uh, Kiva now, uh, after three years, receives $3 million every month in people who are giving donation, not donations, loans, of mm-hmm. $25 to $75 to $100. 97% of all of those loans are repaid. It's absolutely amazing. That's phenomenal. Okay, it's absolutely phenomenal. So the yeah. Internet plus awareness plus right. more people being really concerned uh, right. plus new notions of social entrepreneurship that are highlighted in the book really are getting people to become, as I say, much more part of the solution at a time when we need that kind of action. Right, right. And it seems like in some ways it, it might be so easy that people don't believe it. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it is so easy and yet how could it be so easy to do something like that? There must be a catch. There isn't. There isn't. But... No, I mean, if, you're, if you don't have to, you don't have to be a Matt and Jessica Flannery and start a Kiva. All you have to do mm-hmm. is kiva.org, sit in your uh, sit at your computer and give twenty five. Right. Lend twenty five dollars. There's no case. right. Right. You're looking at the picture of the person that you're going to loan to. Uh, you will get reports on a regular basis, and then after a certain time, you'll uh, you'll see on the screen. Uh, it'll say that uh, uh, do you want your money back or do you want to reinvest it with someone else? There is not a catch. There are challenges uh, that- taking on some of these major tasks, of course. Yeah, it sounds like something like that would work well these days, even in the U.S. Absolutely. absolutely. And I am not suggesting in the book that people have to go out to outside the United States Mm -hmm. to make a difference. Uh, These same 
uh, techniques that I talk about can be applied uh, in one's neighborhood. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk more about this when we come right back after this break. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On the economy and the markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Market with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're speaking with Wilfred Welch today. Wilfred is chairman of Cross Cultural Journeys Foundation and author of The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World. Wilfred, you've spoken about the work you've done um, throughout the world and with individuals and organizations, and you began speaking a bit about some of the work you did related to Mount Everest and nature and the environment, and I know the environment is very important to you. Um, Tell us about some experience that you had that kind of prompted you to take nature inside into the organization. Well, in um, 25 or 30 years ago, I was heading off to um, uh, Annapurna, the the four Annapurnas in Nepal on a 28-day trek, and I had done enough up to that point to demonstrate that I had no idea how to be safe in the natural environment. Uh, I had really done some very foolish things. And, oh, dear. Um, so I um, encouraged my wife and the other couple that was with us on this trek to go to the National Outdoor Leadership School, otherwise known as Knowles, uh, which is the world's leading uh, program or institution teaching wilderness skills. I ultimately became, uh, went on that board of Knowles and became the chairman of the board and things. 
And that really has opened my eyes to more formally or actively getting engaged in the, the natural world. Uh, mm. That led, I didn't lead it actually, but in 1988 I was in Tibet uh, on a trip and um, uh, went to the base camp a little beyond uh, of Mount Everest from the Tibetan side, took a photograph of Mount Everest, and really, as luck would have it, that became um, the uh, the formal photograph of the National Geographic of Mount Everest for their climate oh, wow. map. Um, but in 1994, I led the support team on Everest um, uh, for a group of good friends of mine uh, called the Sagamartha Environmental Expedition. Sagamartha is the Nepalese name for uh, Mount Everest. And the purpose mm. of that trip, which included Scott Fisher, who then died two years later uh, on Mount mm. Everest. Remember that famous book, Into Thin Air by yeah. John And I'd actually been asked by Scott to be on that climb. But oh, in boy. 1994, that expedition, uh, the purpose of it was to remove trash from Mount Everest and introduce the notion of leave no trace. Mm. And we removed 5,000 pounds of trash off the high camps of Mount Everest. And so that sort of symbolizes my real deep interest in the notion of leave no trace and my commitment to getting corporations and individuals to, again, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, that whole movement to clean up Everest and clean up all of the um, big mountains around the world um, is, uh, if it wasn't happening, those beautiful places in nature would begin deteriorating. I mean, you know, can you imagine? I'm sure you you must have, when you went up there, you saw mounds and mounds of garbage and yeah, I'm also very involved in that now. I'm on the Yosemite National Institute's board and the Headland Institute board out here in which uh-huh. we're introducing young people, 40,000 a year, to three different national parks and mm-hmm. giving them exposure to the natural world. Richard Love has written a very, Louvre has written a very good book called, um, well, his notion is Nature Deficit Disorder. Oh, the book yeah. is called mm-hmm. Last Child in the Woods. And there's something oh, yeah. to that. Eighty percent of the people in the United States now live in cities. And so many people have no idea what they are losing when they have no connection to the natural world. And we're all Why is it so important? It. Why is it so important for us to be connected to nature? It's a great question. Um, uh, I think they're my amateur, if you will, assessment of it is two things. One is when you're in nature, it's actually sort of touching your soul. Um, Mm. It's grounding you. It's reminding you of a very different kind of beauty that you can see uh, that you cannot see any other place. And so there's almost a spiritual element to being out there, which is very, very important to keep one grounded, I believe. Um, um, and, and, and the second is um, we are 
we're losing our connection to the natural world and we are assuming that it will continue on forever and ever to support us. When in fact the world, the, the earth is talking back right now and we haven't been listening. And it's, it's making more and more noise and if we continue on this course, um, we're going to hear a lot more from this world of ours that cannot sustain mm-hmm. us. Uh, and we're going to have all sorts of breakdowns, as I implied at the first segment of this comment, this mm-hmm. program. What kinds of experiences have you had when you're in nature that you would say were um, extraordinary? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I'll be able to give you a cogent answer to that. Um, I've been I've been on mountains, um, like I climbed Denali for 28 days. Um, uh, the, you know, the highest mountain in North America, up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. It's also called McKinley. Um, and that that isolation up there, uh, lots of things happen really to your mind. Uh, mm-hmm. One, I came back because my father was dying very quickly after that trip, so I was back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, almost immediately, and. I was almost disoriented by the amount yeah. of green that I saw after nearly a month of no green and just white. Oh, boy. Um, um, I, uh, I heard sounds that I had lost sight of uh, and were very, very loud. Um, it's, like, it's like going into a garden for the first time and, oh. and smelling something that... Uh, you can only smell, you did not smell five minutes before, and if you yeah. stay in that garden for too long, you won't smell it again because your mm-hmm. senses get uh, uh, accustomed to those smells, and they're not right. as sharp. So it sounds like all of your senses um, were heightened um, because you disconnected for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet you connect with... With, with other things when you're out in the natural world. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, you... I, I mean, a very strange thing. I'm really going off topic here, probably, but I remember after those 28 days, we had almost a forced march coming down, and I was so exhausted from 30 hours of, of climbing mm. that I stood and could not, I thought, make another step. Uh. And I looked down at the ropes and sleds around me that I had been hauling and all the rest... And I started talking to myself out loud, and I said, I want to really thank you. I didn't mean to make you do all this. I pushed you harder than I ever thought I would have to. Thank you. And I was talking to my body, and I realized I was having an outer, you know, a mind-body experience in which I, and that caused me to start asking, who is the one that's asking the question? Mm. And um, those kind of things are very, very valuable. And they're insights that you might not have if um, you just stayed in your day-to-day existence without pushing yourself into the natural world or in other unaccustomed situations. Mm. Do you think that people can reach that level of connection, deep connection to self and to nature um, if they're not climbing Mount Everest, I mean, if somebody's not a mountain climber. Oh, I don't. Think, you know, I, yeah, I think can they go out into the woods? You no, know, I mean, can they? I, is there a way? Yeah? I don't think Mount Everest has anything to do with what we're talking about. It oh, just happens to be something okay. I've had some exposure to. 
Absolutely. I think that one can go and do very, very simple things to expose oneself to mm-hmm. um, to the natural world and get great benefit. And I'm very concerned, as I said, with 80% of us living in cities. I mean, you are in San Francisco, I'm in Sausalito, and I yeah. understand there are a lot of people in Richmond, which is a somewhat depressed area that's five miles from yeah. the Pacific Ocean. Many of those youngsters have never been to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. You yeah. get trapped in your little environment. Right, right. Yeah, it's, there's something something calming about nature. Um, it's almost as if innately we know that nature supports us, mm-hmm. and so we, you know, when we're in nature, things kind of relax. And yeah. I suppose it's not always relaxed. <laughs> At one time, a bear came and visited me. I was not relaxed, but, you know, <laughs> but I learned a lot. <laughs> well, sometimes I find very, very helpful when uh, we are reminded by Mother Nature uh, who's mm-hmm. in charge. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You get spotted well, outside someday, and all of a sudden you realize that you're not quite as, in, as much in control as you thought you were. And that's, that, that humbling experience, I think, is very healthy. Oh, I absolutely agree. Well, we're going to speak more with Wilford Welch about some of his ways of being in the world when we come right back. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back. We're speaking with Wilford Welch today, author of The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World. Now, Wilford, before we went to break, we were talking about the connection to nature and how um, powerful that is for individuals. I know that you have done some things with organizations around nature and ways to um, help them understand how it's connected to business success. Talk about what you've done. Well, as I mentioned, um, uh, we did that cleanup expedition on Everest in 1994. The leader of that expedition, Steve Gorl, and I have teamed up. Um, he's more the pure business, uh, the, the pure mountaineer. 
Um, and I am much more engaged in, oh, I've done a lot of business consulting and things. And so we teamed up in a um, program called Everest and the Enterprise, which you can see on our website, www.everestandenterprise.com. And we talk to corporate audiences, present pictures of climbing Mount Everest, and I focus much more on what can you learn from taking on major mountaineering uh, expeditions like this in terms of the planning for it so you reduce your risks and increase your chances of success, the actual implementation of it so that you deal as you do in uh, putting a business strategy into practice. Um, mm-hmm. as to how you deal with the unexpected as it comes up, which is just what you're, of course, doing when you're trying to reach the top of the mountain. We just we just had some fun doing that, and it's pretty lively stuff. Interesting. And so it allows can, me, you... it, excuse me, it allows me to also get corporations to focus on something I deeply care about, which, as I said, mm. their responsibilities for many of the social and particularly uh, uh, their relationship to the natural world and how they have to start right. husbanding it more and not taking mm. from it. Or we're all in the soup. And we're all in that soup, absolutely. Boy, you know, um, you have talked a lot in the past about, and, and we're part of... Um, founding the Quest for Global Healing, and I know that there were a couple of gatherings um, in the last few years. Can you talk a little bit about what the Quest for Global Healing is? Yeah. Uh, In January of 2004, I, for one of the first times in my life, I really got discouraged about the way the world was heading, and I can say that very honestly. It really was one of the first times. it was in part because I was very concerned about U.S. policy and in the Middle East, et cetera. Uh, and as a former diplomat, I focused on things like that. Sure. But in any case, three of us from Sausalito, three just individuals concerned about how the world is turning, put out a call to action. We called it Quest for Global Healing. I called Desmond Tutu, who I happened to have done some work with before, and asked him if he would join us, and he said yes. And we sort of whistled out there into the rest of the world and said, anybody who's concerned and wants to take action rather than be part of the problem, join us in Ubud, Bali. First gathering was uh, 425 people from 26 countries. Um, And the second gathering, which was in May of 2006, had 650 people from 40 countries. And I was awed by that. One, that so many people were doing good, as I implied before. Secondly, that so many people wanted to be part of the solution but didn't know how to go from concern to action. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, Mm -hmm. I was blown away by the commitment of young people around the world and their knowledge and their desire to get on with it. And those three things caused me to really write the book, The Tactics of Hope. And then this next Quest for Global Healing gathering, which will take place next June in Hawaii, it's basically invitation only, but it is a serious call to action. It basically is saying we are on an unsustainable course. We have about 10 years to make a fundamental shift in the direction 
that we as humankind take this earth and let's bring the right people together from corporations, from the media, uh, uh, from um, educational institutions, from governments, etc., to really start to deal. And once we get clear of the shift in values that is required, then we get clear about the actions and then those individual stakeholder stakeholders that are there will roll that out to the rest of the world. At least that's the notion. And we're not owing. So is that the intention of that gathering is to get clear in what the shift in values needs to be? That is absolutely correct. And what the actions are that flow. If the notion, for example, that more, the, the current value that runs the world right now is that more and more is better and better. Hmm. Uh, whether more and more is better for one is an argument that you can have. And I have my opinions on it, but that's not very relevant. What I'm clear about is that more and more is not sustainable any longer. And therefore, if a shift in values has to take place, that maybe we have to satisfy our needs, not our wants, because huh. there are now 6.6 billion of us. Uh, what's that mean in terms of how we start behaving towards each other and towards the earth? Hmm. So talk a little bit about this invitation-only aspect of the mm-hmm. gathering. I mean, why is it invitation-only? Or what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, well, number one, it's on the volcano in um, the big island of Hawaii, which can only uh-huh. hold um, up to 300 people. So we're very limited in the number of people that can come. Mm-hmm. Secondly, as we focused in on this, and I'm not an elitist, at least I hope I'm not, but as we focused in on it, the severity of the problem and the shortness of the time in which we can deal, really deal with mm-hmm. these challenges requires that we, 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 we invite people who have the most leverage uh, mm-hmm. that if they get um, uh, committed to this, they can make a difference. So there, right. hopefully there are 10 university presidents from around the world that are showing up. Well, each of those presidents will have an average of about 20,000 students. Uh, If you get university presidents to get clear about the shifts in curriculum that are required in the way of teaching that curriculum, you have Mm -hmm. leverage to start changing people's minds and their actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the reason we're designing it. It's not to be elitist. Mm -hmm. It's designed to really move very quickly on a problem that uh, humankind has got to start to deal with much more effectively. And I'm not saying people aren't dealing. I'm saying governments won't get the job done because they don't have the political will uh, or even the creativity often get the jobs done. Mm-hmm. Corporations, as far as I'm concerned, are certainly in many cases part of the problem but must be part of the solution and must be right. engaged in working with others in being part of the solution. So let's make sure that all of those stakeholders in a uh, positive future are are together, working together towards a sustainable end. Will there be a way for people to track what you guys are doing? Yes, in we're, this, creating, uh, the, we're creating a website, uh, beyondsustainability.org, which should be up in about a month and a half. And okay. um, everything that will go on at the gathering will be on that website. And that is a way of people around the world tracking what we're doing. 
it's very important to, to get new ideas out. One of the things I haven't mentioned is that we're privileging something that may surprise you. We're privileging, uh, among others, the voice of native peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Hawaiian Kahunas, um, the Hawaiian uh, traditional peoples' voices has been very muted over the last 106 years yes, yeah. by white people such as myself who have taken their land, told them that they don't have much to say to the rest of the world, that it mm-hmm. has value. And um, I think that people who have been closer to this earth for all of these years um, uh, may have something to say in terms of values that we can learn from and turn into actions that may need to help save us. Well, it sounds like it'll be a fascinating gathering, and I know people will want to um, definitely stay tuned to how it's going. I also know that we are coming to a close. We have about one minute until we're done today. And so, um, Wilford, what what website can people <clears throat> excuse me can people go to to learn more about you and the book Patrick of Hope? Okay. Um, where would you like to send them? Sure, they go to www.tactics with an S of Hope it's very, very, I believe, exciting website. And the most exciting, you could obviously buy the book there through Amazon, go to an independent bookstore, etc. But the most exciting thing is right in the center of the home page, which is called My Circle, in which people mm-hmm. can start to articulate their passions, how they want to exercise those passions, and where, and connect with thousands of people and organizations around the world that are doing the same things that they're interested in. So we're trying to support the notion of empowering people to take action. Wilfred Welch, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, and uh, you just have a fascinating life, and we're privileged to have been let in on just little glimpses of of how you've contributed to our world. So thanks so much, Wilfred. And uh, remember, everybody, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.